I tell you, there's a, <clears throat> a fundamental rule about speakers. The first thing is don't applaud till you've heard them. <laughs> now, I'm delighted to be here. It's an honor for me. I, I want to thank you for coming and thank in particular Peter Thompson for uh, sponsoring this. Now, my title is Systems Thinking, uh, Extraordinary Longevity, and Pot. And for those, if there are any of you who didn't notice the comma after the word longevity, if, if you think that I'm going to talk about living a long life because you smoke pot, uh, forget it. I am going to cover three topics. Uh, one is, uh, of course, systems thinking. The second uh, is extraordinarily longevity. And the third is the drug scene. I've picked these three uh, because I I've been involved in these topics for uh, a very long time and had a fair amount that I'd like to share with you. Now, first is uh, systems thinking. What we tend to be taught and what we tend to do is, is linear thinking. A yields B yields C. And that's all right a lot of the time. And this first slide shows linear thinking on emerging and re-emerging infection epidemics such as Zika or Ebola or a whole variety of microorganisms that we're going to face increasingly in coming decades. Now, linear thinking is what's being done now, and there's nothing wrong with it in this instance. So linear thinking says do surveillance, detect the infection early, get specimens to the laboratory, find out what the bug is, and then try and intervene. That's okay. That's okay. But the problem with it is that it's not good enough to think in that fashion for complex problems. Now, my version of systems thinking is not the classic version that, say, is taught for a semester or a year or longer at places like MIT. My version is societally connected systems thinking, and it's a better way of thinking about the major problems that face our society, and any one of you can do it. All you have to do is say that I'm not going to think in linear fashion, I'm going to think sort of in circular fashion, and I will show you that on the next uh, slide. This is a systems approach, and what I'd like you to notice, the obvious, how completely different it is from the linear diagram that I showed you at the beginning. Uh, it said that there are simple answers to complex problems, and they're usually wrong. Now, if you look at this slide, and I'm not really interested in your learning anything about any details from this slide, I would like you to focus 
just on the two major uh, risk factors, uh, namely, oh, huh, you won't do it on this slide. Uh, all right, let's, let's see where it is. There it is. Now, this is the systems approach. And to make this, this is a systems diagram is the bedrock of my version of systems thinking. And anybody can create one. All you do, as I said, was you stop thinking in linear fashion, and then you put down all the relevant variables you can think of. No right or wrong to it. If you ask 10 people to do it for emerging infections, you're liable to get 10 different diagrams. That's fine. And one of the exercises we've used in the past is to get 10 different people to draw 10 different diagrams and then eventually meld them into one diagram. But the point of it is that what you do is you put the variables in and then you use unidirectional or bidirectional arrows to indicate their interrelationships and you put one or two asterisks beside those variables or risk factors which, if modified, could beneficially change the whole system. Now, if you do that with emerging and re-emerging infections, then the two variables that overwhelm the system, one at the top is population growth and size, and the other one is global climate change, global warming. And these act in part in concert by creating large numbers of refugees. So currently, there are in the range of 65 million people who are either internally dispersed uh, in the, within their own countries or are refugees outside their country. If we have increased global population, which we will, and we have a warmer climate, the predictions are that we could have as many as 200 to more than 500 million refugees. That is pretty clearly beyond the coping capacity of uh, human beings. So the point from these two slides is that you end up with totally different approaches. You still have to retain the linear approach. It's still important to detect them early. But this diagram says that if you want to prevent severe emerging infection epidemics in the future, because the output of this diagram is more or less such infections, then you have to do something about population growth and about global warming. And of course, you all know that in the current climate, both of those are being virtually totally ignored, which is an absolute disaster. Because if you get a hotter climate uh, and you get bigger population and you have these gargantuan number 
of refugees living together often uh, huddled in appallingly unhygienic circumstances, that is a guaranteed incubator for emerging infection epidemics that can spread in the same country or around the world. So if we want to do something about the risk of emerging and re-emerging infection epidemics, we have to pay attention to the two major risk factors, and you don't get that from a linear diagram. All right, there are three components to my societally um, uh, connected systems thinking. And, and again, I, I'd emphasize any one of you can create these diagrams. All you have to do is decide you want to do it. And actually, they're, they're a lot of fun. It requires that you spend the time thinking about what the variables are and then put in the arrows showing their interrelationships. So that's one of three components of societally connected uh, systems thinking. The second is thinking like a futurist. Now, what futurists do in part is to draw up alternative scenarios for the future years, decades, centuries away, and then try and figure out how we're going to move to the most attractive of those scenarios. And futurists have certain precepts, among them the following. Uh, the future cannot be predicted with certainty. It is not immutable. It can be modified for the benefit of mankind uh, and the planet. And if you are, as I am, a believer in biophilism, it could be also modified for the benefit of some of the creatures who uh, inhabit the, the planet uh, with us. The third component is critical. Namely, that we have to imbue young people in high school and college with the notion that they should be committed, committed for the rest of their lives to in some way or another participating in ameliorating or solving important societal problems, whether at a local, state, national, or international level. Now, this is not the same as going in your junior or senior year in high school for a one-month project in the community. That's a good start, but this is entirely different. If that is to happen, if young people really are going to be committed to that kind of lifetime involvement, they have to believe that our society has a future. They have to believe we are meliorist. And that means that we can solve the major problems facing us by the dint of our own efforts. Now, we did a couple of national surveys with pretty good population size, divided into four groups, age groups. 18 to 24, 25 to 44, 45 to 64, 65 and over. 
The last of the two surveys was done 10 years ago. The surveys are absolutely relevant today and in accord with surveys I've seen. And here's what we found, and it's, uh, it's daunting. And more than that, it's a little depressing. When we asked them, how optimistic are you about your own future? The overwhelming majority, 83% in the younger age groups, felt optimistic about their own futures. And then we asked them, what about the future of the United States and the future of the world? And the results were stunning. In every age group, less than half, around 40-45%, thought that there was reason for optimism. The clear majority in every age group were pessimistic about the future of the United States and the world. And then we asked them what they thought the likelihood was of nuclear warfare or biologic warfare in the next 20 years. And in every age group, the overwhelming majority thought that one or both would occur. And we asked them about severe global warming with major consequences. And uh, the majority, again, thought either would happen in the next 20 years or sometime thereafter. And finally, we asked them what to me was the most important question. We listed major societal problems. And then we asked them if they thought that we could solve them by the dint of our own efforts, if we were a ameliorous society. And in every single age group, the majority said we weren't. Now, if they really believe that, then we're in for a lot of problems. Because if you don't believe that there's a future, why should you participate? Why not turn to hedonism? And that means, of course, increased drug use, increased alcohol use, and by the way, a, a, a lot of depression. What this told us was that we are going to have to, if we want these young people committed, we are going to have to consciously instill in them the notion that we are still meliorist. And if we don't, then they're not going to participate long-term or even short-term in trying to solve major uh, societal issues. So what, what recommendations would I make from this first part of, of my talk? One, no student, no student should be allowed to graduate from high school or college unless he or she take, can take a problem of his or her choice and put that problem in a systems context. 
in essence, we have to teach them how to think better. I think what we're teaching them is how to acquire information. But that's not thinking. That's acquiring. And the only way they're going to think better is if they can distinguish when a linear approach to a problem is perfectly satisfactory and when you have to think about it in a better fashion, in a systems fashion. And so I, I don't think this is very hard, by the way. I think you can teach thinking like a futurist and uh, systems, as I've shown you here, the systems diagram. You could do that either in a two-week special part of the curriculum or within currently existing courses. But I think it has got to be done if we want to have a good future for our society. Number two, and you'll, you'll think this is fanciful, but I think that every time we elect somebody to a legislature, locally, state, federal, that before they actually take their seats, that they should spend a day in a seminar that will literally teach them the difference between linear and systems thinking, and they should have to produce a systems diagram. Uh, I, I know that many of you would think that the notion of thinking better and the Congress of the United States is an oxymoron, uh, and that, um, that our national body as a body seems to suffer from uh, phronemophobia. Uh, phronemophobia is fear of thinking. But we have to get them to think better. And at least if they can be exposed to a systems approach to complex problems, uh, that's uh, hopefully a, a head start. Third, and this is eminently doable, uh, attached to at least the state and the national legislature, ought to be an office of systems thinking. And when appropriate, when a problem comes up that is complex and needs a systems approach, that they draw a systems diagram and make it available to every member of the Congress or the, uh, the state uh, legislature. Fifth, or maybe it's fourth, but it's one or the other. Um, it's what I alluded to. We have to consciously spend a lot of effort in our curriculums to instill in young people the notion that we are indeed still a meliorist society. If they don't believe that, they'll never be involved. And if they don't get involved, then my whole societally connected systems thinking is virtually worthless. So we've got to get them to believe that we are still meliorist. And I must say, uh, even with all the events happening, I still believe we are. And finally, we should be doing a national survey every single year similar to the one I related to you. Simple survey that tells us whether they have uh, optimism or pessimism about themselves and about 
the future uh, of the country and the world. So we can see trends and attempt to attempt to uh, intervene. I, I made the point earlier about uh, about uh, hedonism. Uh, I, I think this this is a, an absolutely critical issue because you see, I think it's possible that in our surveys they were pessimistic and said we were non-meliorist, but I, I'm not sure that they really believed it. They said it. But what I worry about is that it will get deep into their psyches, and when it does, I will guarantee it will erode personal optimism. And when that happens, I will again give you a flat-footed guarantee that if you think the drug scene is bad now, it will become a lot worse. Okay, that's it for part one of my diatribe. Let's turn to extraordinary longevity. Longevity is the issue. And the game changer occurred, oh, at least a couple of decades ago, when scientists came to believe that what many of you, and certainly I, considered normal aging was not normal at all, and that aging is a disease to be treated as any other disease, and therefore, learn the mechanisms of aging, and once you understand those mechanisms, intervene and modify the aging process itself. It's a stunning concept, and the result of that notion has been fabulous research that has been going on for the last 20 years, considerable amount of it at uh, Harvard and MIT. And if I can get the slides to do what they're supposed to do, this is what I've just told you. This is the linear approach to aging. Define the mechanisms of aging, uh, figure out using a drug probably, how to intervene, and as a result, create extraordinary longevity. And in the last decade in particular, it's been virtual scientific ochlocracy. That is, the science has ruled, and not the greater society for whom the science is allegedly being done. And again, I want to emphasize it's terrific science and should be funded to continue. But that's not the end of the story. Um, if we were able to achieve that, there are a lot of consequences, and I'll show them to you. The likelihood of our achieving it 
is very, very substantial. And this is not, uh, not imagining a, a future. It is a realistic future that is being thrust upon us. In multiple models, multiple models, in a variety of species, you can intervene either by a dietary intervention that would not be used in humans, or with a whole variety of pharmacologic agents attacking different systems, you can increase lifespan by 30 to 50 percent. 30 to 50 percent. That means for us, uh, our lifespan now is in the neighborhood of 80 years. 50 percent increase would be to uh, 120 years. And there was a consensus conference published in a journal called The Aging Cell in 2015, in which the scientists said, it's time now to take what we've done with other species and apply it to humans. And they're already doing it. And the first uh, two agents that'll probably be used, uh, one is resveratrol, which was studied primarily at Harvard. It's uh, found in, in wine. Uh, and the other is metformin, a diabetic drug. But make no mistake about this. It's, again, it's not science fiction. They're already doing studies in humans with controversial results, but they've already started. And that is going to continue at an ever-increasing pace. Well, if we're going to do that, there are certain things that are going to happen. And one is that we will change the variables that relate to population growth. So as, as you all know, what ordinarily you look at is fertility and birth rates, and then you look at de uh, death rates, and population growth is determined by the balance between the two. Well, in the foreseeable future, first in developed, so-called developed countries, considering what so-called developed countries do, I'm not so sure they should be called developed, but let's go with the conventional terminology. First in the developed countries, later in the uh, so-called less developed countries, What's going to happen is that population size is going to be determined not by births and fertility and not by deaths, but by longevity. Now, there, there are two, two basic goals of the scientists. One is compression of morbidity, and I'll tell you what, what that means. What happens now is, as I've learned, you get into your 70s or 80s and you increasingly have decrements. So you get debility, frailty, one sort or another, 
and it tends to get worse until you die. And that may occur over 10 or 20 years or, or longer. The compression of morbidity envisions this, that you will work until, say, you're 80, or whatever time you choose, 70 or 80, and then you'll retire for another, whatever, 30 to 40 or 50 years. And you will be vigorous and involved and relatively disease-free so that you're not going to get, or at least have a less, less likelihood of getting, diseases that are associated with aging. Heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's. And so the idea is you don't get these diseases and you're still vigorous long after you've retired and you don't sort of have no debility that's significant. And then over a period of a few months or maybe only a few weeks, you go downhill rapidly and die. That's compression of morbidity. That's goal number one. And that's what you're going to hear about because that is something that, that sells. And along with it will become, there will come some longevity increase that they say, don't worry about it, it will be just modest. Then there's goal number two. And goal number two is to increase longevity by finding the mechanisms of aging at a genetic level, which they've done, and then give drugs probably starting in middle age, maybe even before, that you take all your life, that will allow extraordinary longevity. Now, what does that mean? Well, in 2004, we held the first, I think it was the first, national conference that was strictly divided between a morning session on the science and an afternoon session on the societal consequences of the science. And our logo was a birthday cake that said, 120 years, congratulations, or happy birthday, great, great, great grandmother. And so you'd say, uh, all right, what made you pick 120? Why not 130, 140, 150? Simple. We thought that if we did anything beyond 120, people would think it was a nutty conference and not bother to attend. And actually, in, in my book, on the systems slide that I'll show you, I have lived to 110 to 120 years. Uh, if I did that book again, it would be 140 to uh, 150 years. A one of the leading research scientists in this field, maybe the best known, who happens to be in Boston, said in an interview a few years ago that he thought that by the turn of the century, longevity would be defined as 150 years. But when you think about it, why is there an upper limit? If we can treat it as a disease and cure it with a drug, well, 120, 150, why not, why not uh, 200? Or some people have said 500 to 1,000 years. 
Now, they're considered outliers, and nobody pays much attention to them. But listen, absolutely, why not? Why is there any upper limit once you have shown that you can modify profoundly the aging process itself? Now, let me tell you what I've been concerned about. First, population size. Every time you increase life expectancy by a decade, you increase the likely population of planet Earth at stability uh, uh, by 1.3 billion people. So life expectancy worldwide now is about 70 years, a little more. If you could increase that to 120 years, five decades, that's 6.5 billion more people. And you, 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 th you think of our planetary population trajectory. Uh, so you start 10,000 BC. To get to the first billion uh, took until 1830. And then it took another 100 years, 1930, to get to 2 billion. And the next uh, point to look at is 2030, another 100 years. It'll be 8 billion, quadrupled in 100 years. It is now predicted that the planetary population at stability will be in the range of 11 or 11 and a half billion people. That'll be achieved by the end of this century. But I mean, that's daunting enough considering what we're doing to this planet and the other species that inhabit it with us. Think now what happens instead of talking about 11 and a half billion, you're talking about six and a half billion more, about 18 billion. And you then begin to have to seriously consider what the planetary capacity of, uh, of Earth is with gargantuan populations, what the carrying ability of the planet is with big populations. And seeing what we've done to the Earth so far, uh, it ought to scare the hell out of, of everybody that we're going to have these, this number of people in the planet, uh, since people frequently don't like each other. So that's one of the, the complications, that, that they, just, they just don't want to talk about it that population size, but it's, it's a huge issue. One of the things they say, by the way, is, ah, don't worry about that, because the only people who will be interested in pills like that will people in the developing world, and that's not nearly so many, so we can afford an increase in those people. So according to that marvelous notion, the Chinese won't care about a cheap generic pill that allows you to live to a 150 or more, and neither will the Indians. I mean, that's elitist and absolute malarkey. So that's, that's issue number one. Now, if I can find it. Oh, there it is. These are, this is a systems diagram, and I, I'm going to talk about some of them, so you don't worry about focusing on, on that. But all that slide is meant to show is that there are a lot of consequences of doing that, of societal consequences that currently are being downplayed. 
And again, I would emphasize that the scientists have decided that their experimental data are now ready for human use. Now, consequences. I'll just mention a few of them. Number one, um, what happens if people outlive their financial resources? I mean, right now, I mean, you all know this, uh, about 40% of people over age 65 are uh, dependent on Social Security for 80% of their income. For two-thirds of those eight over 65, Social Security uh, supplies at least 60% of their income. If you look at poverty, poverty percentages increase every five years uh, after age 65. And what is being done now at a, at a national level has ma major impacts for that. If, uh, if, you, if you cut Medicaid, what are you cutting? Well, one of the major things you're cutting is long-term care for older people. You think the state is going to pick up what the federal government won't pay? Of course they won't. They're going to have to make some very hard decisions about, uh, about feeding younger indigent people or, or caring for disabled people. And there's going to be less funding for long-term care. The, the other thing that's of um, interest is what Paul Ryan and the Republicans have put in their budgetary plan. And what they've put in is turning Medicare into a voucher system. So Medicare then, if they get away with this, and there's a good chance they will, um, you'll get a check every year for a certain amount of money and told to go buy private insurance. But the check will not be satisfactory for needs. So one, you're going to have to buy a, an expensive policy. Second, uh, there will be uh, high copayments and deductibles. And what's going to happen is that a lot of older people, and I mean a lot, will be one major illness away from financial catastrophe. And of course, Oh, you all know this. Social Security is not viable. You can, you can give it Band-Aids, but it's not viable and neither is Medicare. And the reason is simple. And I don't understand why people have such a difficulty understanding. Well, I understand why politicians have a lot of trouble because they can't understand anything. But it's all in the numbers. It's all in the numbers. There are now about 48 million people over age 65. By the turn of the century, that's 130 million. And that's without all the efforts I've been talking to you about to markedly prolong lifespan. So, a lot of people, I mean, you think about it. 
they, say they work as adults from age 20 to 60, I mean 20 to 80, they work 60 years. And now with a pill, they can look forward to 60 years in retirement. The likelihood of getting into financial troubles is overwhelming for the clear majority of, of people. So that's issue number one that has not been addressed at all. Issue number two is especially if there are uh, fiscal restraints, people aren't gonna be able to afford care outside the home and you're gonna find generations living together. I mean, one generation takes care of an older generation, takes care of another generation and you could actually see five generations living together in the same household. And there are gonna be lots of generational antagonisms. The first is gonna be over jobs, but uh, more than that, it's gonna be over our funding. You know, older people tend to vote more. And so they're gonna be competing for limited funds, national funds, state funds, local funds. So I think we're gonna have all sorts of generational uh, antagonisms. Uh, a third issue is healthcare costs. Uh, even if we have the pill, a significant percentage are still gonna get those aging diseases. They'll just reduce the incidence. They're not gonna eliminate it. Right now, if over 65 people on an annualized basis require two to two and a half times the health dollars compared to younger people. Well, what are you gonna do when 30 or 40% of your population is retired? And if these pills don't work as required or only take care of certain illnesses, not others, the healthcare costs for older people are gonna be dawning, in part because the whole system is gonna be um, going to be overblown by numbers. And um, that is a, that's a gargantuan issue. And finally, what about quality of life? About uh, how much you're enjoying this prolonged period of retirement? I think it was Susan Ertz who said something like, uh, millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Uh, the, the quality of life issue is a major one. Okay, so what are, what are my recommendations from this part of my talk? One, we ought to pay more attention to the societal consequences. We cannot let the scientists uh, run the debate. Indeed, there isn't enough of a debate. So that's number one. Uh, the more research they do and the more they start doing humans, the more we've got to talk about societal consequences. Number two, we ought to encourage drugs that reduce those five diseases I talked about, heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's. But, do not significantly prolong longevity. Now that's doable. There actually are a few animal experiments in which just that has happened. 
if they come up with drugs, it may take them longer, but they'll do it. If they come up with drugs that'll do that, uh, good. Foster their use. Number three, uh, we should actively discourage the use in man of any drug with the capacity to create extraordinarily, extraordinary longevity unless that is being done in a careful scientific study with epidemiologic overview, which of course would take quite a bit of time. Yeah, I know, you're, you're shaking your head. You're, you're probably saying can't be done. And, uh, and you may be right, you may be right, but we've got to try. Otherwise, this change will uh, take over, silently surround us, and we won't be able to stop it. And I think the consequences would potentially be dire. Uh, fourth, and I, if somebody wants to talk more about this in the question period, that's fine with me, but I'll just state it. Uh, since I've already indicated that in the long run, both Medicare and Social Security are non-viable, we can still have them, but I only know one way, and that is that we prepay them. We prepay them starting at birth, and it'll take a while and take considerable money, but once you've done that and it's, uh, it's taken place, the fiscal integrity of Social Security and Medicare will be good for the foreseeable future. So those are those recommendations. Now let me, let me uh, end briefly with the third part of the talk, the drug scene. Uh, Four points. One is we're, we're now suffering this terrible opioid epidemic, but uh, I've lived a long time, and I've uh, lived through uh, the LSD epidemic and the 1950s heroin epidemic and the 1980s cocaine epidemic, and now it's an opioid epidemic. We know the where and the when, but we are not being careful enough to ask about the why. We are sort of assuming that every drug abuser is like every other drug abuser. And here, here's linear approaches, which is still what we do. There are two of them there. One is, top one is, uh, the drug abuser gets an infection, say, and gets into the hospital system, the medical system. Well, they treat him and send him home. And the other is they uh, gets into the legal system. They get incarcerated, and then they get sent back uh, to the community. Well, my last slide is a systems approach to the why. And that slide includes a lot of things. Boredom, no faith in, in, the, in the future, family problems, psychological problems. I mean, for a lot of people, it is not the drug. We focus on the drug, but actually it's the underlying problem. And you cannot, 
You cannot, if you want a good rehabilitation rate, you cannot treat every drug user like every other drug user. You have to ask why, and you have to have competent people involved who can figure it out. Otherwise, no matter what you do, you're going to have a very limited recovery rate. So that's one of the, uh, one of the four points. Uh, number, uh, number two, um, if I could remember what number, oh yeah, alternatives to drug use. And I'll illustrate that with a quick anecdote. Years ago, after my first book came out, it was called The Drug Scene, it was very popular, and I was asked to go to places to talk to parents who were panicked. So one night I go to Westchester, and the place is jam-packed. And as the principal and I are, uh, are walking to the podium, he turns to me and he says, you know, it's unfortunate, but they just cut our extracurricular budget by 50%. And I turned to him and I said, well, what am I doing here? There's not a single thing I can say to this group of parents that will counter that terrible decision. You want to prevent drug abuse among young people whether it's in the community or school, you've got to offer them alternatives to the drug scene that they find constructive and exciting. That, in my judgment, I've felt this way for the 50 years I've been involved, that, in my judgment, is the best way to counter drug use among uh, younger people. And I'll tell you, I'm particularly worried now about the charter schools. As far as I can see, what the charter schools want to do on the cheap, if possible, is focus on academics and not enough on the importance of extracurricular activities that could keep people from the drug scene. The third point, it is critical, it is critical that every drug abuse program that is funded be required to have maybe 10 or 20% of its funds set aside for extramural, standardized evaluation, not only of the treatment period, but after they're discharged. And it's got to be run by epidemiologists and statisticians. If we don't do that, we are going to waste billions upon billions of dollars, and we will never know what works. I helped start the best program in New Jersey, and for a while we were paid a lot of money to track them. Not, they said not evaluate, just track. So we did that for 10 years. After about 25, 30 years, now this is still considered the best program in New Jersey, and it's good, run by very good people. We said, okay, let's get together and figure out what your recovery rate is. They said, well, of the thousands of people who have gone through this program, we think we can uh, know what happened to 70. And that included those who stayed in the program as drug counselors. And we said, forget it. You can't evaluate on that kind of sample. So I will guarantee you this. We don't have rigid extramural, I mean extramural, not intramural. 
extramural evaluation, then rehabilitation in the United States is going to be largely a charade, a very costly charade. And the last point, marijuana. Fifty years ago, I was against the legalization of marijuana. I am against the legalization of marijuana today, but not, not the way you might think. Uh, if, um, if you ask the question, is marijuana safer than alcohol? Of course it is. If you say, is marijuana a gateway drug to more dangerous drugs? Yeah, it is for a very small percentage, but for the overwhelming majority is not, it is not then why in the world would I be opposed? I want a debate, a national debate, about how many intoxicants we want in our society. I don't think I know of any society that has had unlimited intoxicants and thrived. Well, what do we have? We have caffeine, which is pretty safe, tobacco, which of course is not safe, and alcohol which is certainly not safe. So the issue is, do we want to add a fourth, marijuana? And if we do, what happens when five years from now, somebody comes up with a synthetic drug that is no more dangerous than marijuana? Legalize that too? And then five years from then, another drug, no more dangerous. Do we legalize that? If we have the national discussion and the majority think that we can tolerate the addition of a fourth intoxicant, marijuana, I say good. If that's the majority view, legalize it. But at least before we legalize it, have a discussion and debate about that critical issue. Now I'll close with this. I, I think I've spent a fair amount of this talk on uh, what could rightly be called doom and gloom. Well. I tell you, I still believe we're a millionaire society. I, I believe we can solve the major problems facing us by the dint of our own efforts, although we have to get going at it. Um, it you know, it, I used to be, uh, a little while ago, uh, I became uh, a moderate pessimist. And now I'm a guarded optimist. And the reason is that I think that sleeping giant, the, the American public, is waking up. I mean, you see it in the, the marches for the dreamers against the destruction of Ob Obamacare, among other issues. And, and, of course, you've had the marches in Boston. And that's terrific. It's, it's a long way from making better decisions and having people think better, better about complex and important problems. But it's a good start. And so the, that's what's turned me from a moderate pessimist to a uh, guarded optimist. That's what's given me hope. And as the saying goes, he who has hope has everything. Thank you.